That was pretty good. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is John Rebell. I have the honor and privilege of serving as chaplain to first responders in Southwest Connecticut. And we also have the joy, Debbie and I, of uh, calling Calvary our church home. And it's always a, a blessing to share God's word. And it's good to be with you this morning. Before we get into God's word, let's uh, pause. Let's ask him to bless this time to open our hearts to what he has to say to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed holy, and that goes far beyond anything that we can possibly uh, imagine or comprehend. But thank you that you are holy, that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are mighty. Thank you for your patience, for your grace, for your offer of forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for the provision for our sin, Jesus' death on the cross, so that we could have our sins cleansed and removed and our relationship with you restored. And it's only because of that that we can come to you this morning. Father, we ask that you would bless this time, accomplish your purposes despite the messenger. Father, accomplish your pur purposes through the message, your word. Help us to receive what you have to say and then to yield to you as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Have you ever been in a situation where it seems like Jesus has let you down? Now the pious among us are going to say, no, that doesn't happen. But those of us who are a little less pious may say, yeah, I can relate to that. Now I'll give you a spoiler alert. Jesus does not ever let anybody down, okay? So uh, right at the outset. But honestly, aren't there times where it seems like Things have gone awry, and the hopes that you've placed in the Lord seem to crumble, and the appearance as, is as if Jesus has, in fact, let us down, has not lived up to his promises or the expectations that we have placed upon him. You may not have been there, but I suspect you know someone who has, where it either is on the side of planning or it's on the side of relationships in life. On the planning side, you know, honestly, I'm a person who likes to plan. Forty-some uh, years ago, I got my scuba certification, and, and our instructor told us over and over again, when you go out into the water, you plan your dive, and then you dive your plan. And then I took that, I thought that's a good model. I took that and I said, okay, I applied it to work. You plan your work, and then you work your plan. And I thought, okay, well, that's applied to life. You plan your life, and then you live your plan. And you want to do it for God's glory, and, and you're doing it focused on Him and serving Him. But what happens when living that plan hits a dead end, not just hits, but crashes into a dead end, and the world seems to crumble around you? And you say, well, Lord, I was living this plan for you, what happened? Or on the other side, you are genuinely striving to be a person of God, a husband or wife that follows God's design, a parent, an employee. And as a spouse, you've committed your life to applying the biblical principles found in Ephesians and Colossians and other places. And then all of a sudden the spouse 
leaves and takes off with someone else. You go to God and say, God, I did what you asked me to do. I loved her. I followed his lead. Where were you? Where are you? I committed my, our, we, we committed our lives to raising our children. If you raise the child in the way he should go, raise up a child in the way that he or she should go, and he will not depart from it. We poured our lives into this, these children. And now she's got off with this guy who has a stud in his tongue and a, a piercing in his nose, and his forehead is all tattooed. What happened? Father, I've committed my life to serving you as an employee. I've applied the biblical principles. I've applied integrity. And my, my boss doesn't want me to use integrity. He wants me to fudge. I was associate pastor of a church on, on Long Island for a while, and one of our members, uh, excellent accountant, worked for a huge uh, corporation in Manhattan and one of the higher-ups came and said we need you to change the numbers a little bit and he said I can't do that he lost his job God, I've tried to be a model employee and I get fired I've tried to take care of this body I have exercised I've reduced my saturated fats I've taken care of all of the cholesterol warnings, and all of a sudden, I'm getting a heart attack or I'm getting cancer? What happened? If you've not been there, and I suspect most of us have, but if you've not been there, you probably know somebody who has. And if you have experienced that sensation, not wanting to say it outright, but deep down inside, there's the sense that Jesus let me down. He didn't live up to my expectations. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. If you've been there, I'd like to commend to you this morning my good friend Thomas. Thomas and I have become close in the last few years. I've come to appreciate him. I've come to uh, sympathize with him a little bit. And most of you, if you've grown up in the church, you know the passage that's going to be the heart of the passage, uh, heart of the focus this morning. Uh, from uh, the end of John, John chapter 20, where uh, Thomas is not there with the other disciples when Jesus appears to them. And so they come to him and report that we've seen Jesus, and Jesus, uh, Thomas comes and responds to them by saying, uh-uh, I'm not going to believe it. I, I don't know what you saw, but I'm not going to believe it unless I can place my finger in the nail prints in his hand or I can place my hand into the place where the spear entered his side. I'm not there. And as a result of that statement, he has received the title of blank Thomas. What? Doubting Thomas. There was a time where I looked at him, I looked down on him, uh, a little bit of disdain. How could he lack faith? And in fact, I found uh, a commentator who accused him of sin in that statement. But I've started to look at his whole story. And I've come to appreciate there's a reason for that. And this morning, in a moment, we're going to look at four passages 
that are the four quotes. Thomas has four statements in the, all of the Gospels. They're all found in the book of John. And we're going to see how he got to that point and the resolution to that point. And uh, Brother Chris did an excellent job last week of presenting uh, scenes. We're, I'm going to follow his lead. We're going to look at four vignettes. It's the same idea, just a little fancier term. Uh, four vignettes that show the heart of Thomas and how he got to that point. But first, we've got to look at the background. And please bear with me, because this has to be considered before we can really appreciate Thomas's situation. Thomas lived in an area, in a time, both geographical and in, in the, the timetable of history, where the Jewish people were in search of the promised Messiah King. This was the focus of godly Jews because they were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they, the, the emperor was pagan. They, he be, believed himself to be a god. And they put pressure on the Jewish people not to uh, practice their faith. And so they were longing for the Messiah, the promised king. And it goes back to the Isaiah passage. And some of you uh, will remember this from Christmas, but it's not just a Christmas uh, passage. Uh, Isaiah, looking in the, uh, the future, said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We all know that from Handel's Messiah and from Christmas time. But sometimes we lose sight of the first part, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then the next verse says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, that means he's going to be the king. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so this was the promise that the Jewish people had received some 600 years earlier. And there were other passages that promised the coming Messiah who would reign as king. And this was at a time where kingship was significant. For us today, that really has no bearing on us. We, uh, kings and kingdoms are things of ancient history. But in, in those days, the people saw the king as the one who had absolute authority over everyone and everything. If a king made a law, if a king made a decision, there was no appealing a higher court. When Pharaoh said, kill all the babies uh, of the Jewish people, they couldn't appeal. That was the law. The king not only had full uh, absolute authority, had absolute ownership over everything. And the king was the combination of God and uh, the earthly reign. There was a connection. Uh, Pharaoh, they viewed him as a god. Uh, 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 all throughout history, Nebuchadnezzar, he, they were supposed to bow down and worship him. So there was this concept of God, uh, 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 of king, as absolute owner, absolute authority, and God, man, king. But Isaiah promised, and other prophets promised, that there was a coming Messiah who would be the ultimate king. And so the Jewish people were longing for that to deliver them from the oppression and so when we get to the first chapter of John, we see uh, John the Baptist 
presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise. And the disciples, go ahead and, and put up John 149. The disciples have been introduced to him, and they start to think, okay, this is the fulfillment. This is the Christ, the Messiah, synonyms with king. And Philip approaches Nathaniel and said, we found the promised Messiah, and he said, no, how can uh, the king come out of, of Nazareth? But Jesus said, I saw you sitting on the fig tree, and Nathaniel's response to him was, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So they were starting to acknowledge Jesus is king. Momentum is starting to grow. In John, John chapter 4, we see Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he is addressing not only a, a uh, Samaritan, which was... was uh, a taboo for Jewish people, but a Samaritan woman who was immoral. And in the course of that, she says, we know that the coming, the Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the Greek, it's literally, I the one with whom you are speaking, I am. And he, in that instant, made full disclosure to a Samaritan woman that he, in fact, was the promised Messiah king. Momentum started to grow even more. His disciples see that. Jesus feeds the 5,000. In John chapter 6, we see the, the reaction to it. The crowds start getting excited. He's, here's, could this be the king? And so when the people saw that the sign he had done, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him what? King. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain beside himself. So in all of this, the, the momentum is building, and the disciples pour their lots. They cast their lots into the life of Jesus, and they're following Jesus. And they're fully expecting him to rise to the occasion, to gather the troops, to mount an insurrection and overthrow the Roman government. And in that context, we see these four statements from Thomas. The first one is found in John eleven sixteen. This is just before uh, Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus says, we're going, tensions have built. The Pharisees really have it out for him. They are looking to kill him. He can't, had the audacity to uh, say before Abraham was, I am which he declared himself to be God in the flesh. So there is this plot to kill Jesus. And Jesus said, let's go. And Thomas's reaction, so Thomas called the twin, Didymus means twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The first picture we have in this first vignette of Thomas is that Thomas was committed. Thomas was willing to lay down his life for this purpose, this plan, but also for this person. Thomas was all in. He fully believed that Jesus was the king. He believed in this plan to usher in the kingdom of God through the Messiah in overthrowing the Roman Empire. But over the course of time, he had also become totally invested in this person of Jesus to the point that he was willing to lay down his life. 
Make no doubt about it. Thomas was fully committed. The next time we see Thomas' statement is in the upper room. Now, uh, again, leading up to the upper room, Thomas may have not been fully convinced that Jesus was going to see, uh, succeed. So he was, he was willing to die. He wasn't sure that Jesus had all that it took to overthrow and to, to raise up this rebellion. He was willing to do what was necessary, even if it meant dying. But after that, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And things start to get exciting. Okay, here's the promised Messiah. He's got this power. He can actually raise somebody from the dead. So he's got what it takes to mount this insurrection. But Jesus is still doing things a little bit differently. And it has the disciples a little confused. And so in the upper room, the night that he's, uh, he is going to be betrayed and, and turned over, and all of you know this from, uh, from John chapter 14, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, just before this, in chapter 13, Jesus had said something similar. And Peter said, where are you going? How are... In, Commentators sometimes uh, have suggested that they thought Jesus was going to remove himself from Jerusalem after the Passover and go to Capernaum or somewhere to start gathering the troops for, uh, for this battle. So they were confused when he said, oh, you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except uh, through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So the second picture that we have of Thomas, he was committed indeed, but he was clueless. He really had no concept of what Jesus was going to do. He was thinking on a geopolitical realm. Now, there was a relationship, obviously, with Jesus and, and the Lord, but he and the other disciples, they were still locked into this concept of a human government being impacted by a king who would take over and usher in the kingdom of earth, a uh, kingdom of heaven on earth. He was clueless as to the larger plan that Jesus had in store for them. And he was not alone. The other disciples didn't get it. And they were just, Peter, in that same evening, when Jesus said, you're all going to um, uh, abandon me, Jesus, uh, Peter said, we're going to die for you. I, I, I would never... I would never leave you. I'd never betray you. I am willing to die for you. And that's when Jesus said, before the, uh, the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. But this evening starts to go into a direction that the disciples never saw. After the upper room discourse and, and this conversation, 
and Jesus goes out uh, to the garden. Things, the stage is set now for this rebellion, this revolution to actually kick off. The disciples are there with Jesus. Here, comes, here come the soldiers and the Pharisees, and they're about to arrest Jesus. And so if there was momentum building, and if this was a movie, you'd hear the music building and the drums and, the, and all of the sound and everything's getting excited. And they go to take Jesus, and Peter says, this is it, takes out a sword, lashes out, cuts. He misses the servant's head. He hits his ear, cuts off his ear. But this is the time. This is where Jesus is going to sound the trumpets and everybody's going to gather around. And this is going to be the start of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And Jesus rebukes Peter. And rather than finishing the job on the servant, he picks up the ear and miraculously, miraculously puts it back on the servant. And the sound you heard right after that was all of the air rushing out of their combined balloons. Because Jesus did the exact opposite of what they expected him to do. All of the hopes and dreams of a coming kingdom of God that would be the fulfillment of all of the prophets over the last several hundred years, all of those hopes and dreams crashed and burned in that garden as the soldiers led Jesus away for a kangaroo court in the truest sense. And you know the story, the disciples vanished. They dispersed. Peter hung out from a distance, but we know why he was so hesitant to identify himself with, with Christ, because Jesus was an insurrectionist who was arrested, and all of the court, if you go through the book of John, you see all of the court proceedings had to do with whether or not he was really the king. It was all about his kingship. And even when the plaque was nailed on, uh, on the cross, uh, Pilate put up there, uh, king of the Jews, and the Pharisees didn't want that. And he said, no, what I put up there, the king of the Jews. The whole trial, the arrest, uh, the flogging, the beating, all of it had to do because of Jesus' identification with being the king. But this is a king who's been defeated. He's been crushed. He's been beaten physically, but also in the whole mission of overthrowing the Roman Empire. And the disciples were devastated. And they ran and they hid. John stood by uh, Jesus' mother, Jerry, at the foot of the cross, but everybody else is gone. Their world collapsed. All of them had poured their life into this purpose and plan of Jesus, but they had also poured their lives into the person of Jesus. And it was hard for them to separate the two. They were one and the same. But at that moment in time, it was all destroyed. It was all wiped away. And it was a massive instance of Jesus letting them down. And so all the excitement that we've, we've heard about uh, the resurrection and the disciples seeing them, you understand their excitement. They're starting to see something different. But this is where we get the next picture of Thomas. So 
after the disciples had seen him, uh, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. In the Greek, it's a double negative. And translated in our corporate colloquialism, ain't no way. I am not going there. You've heard the phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And that was Thomas's mindset. And, you know, for years people have criticized him, but I get it. I know what it's like to pour all of your heart, all of your energy into a, pur a purpose and a plan and a person and to see it leveled, devastated, and experience the dismay, the confusion. All of that goes along with that which the dream that's been destroyed. And Thomas, yes, he was committed, he was clueless, but at this point in time, it's my impression that Thomas was crushed. He was feeling the full weight of the collapse, the destruction of his dream, of everything that was precious to him. It had come crashing down, and he was crushed under its rubble. So I'm willing to give Thomas a break. I'm not going to sit in judgment over him because I personally can relate to that. But fortunately for all of us, it doesn't stop there, does it? The fourth statement from Thomas is the most significant one. Because when Jesus appeared to Thomas several days later, uh, to the disciples, and Thomas was there, Jesus did not criticize Thomas for his state of mind. He didn't uh, condemn him. When he appeared, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my That statement is absolutely pivotal in the Gospel of John. Many commentators believe that that is the climax of John's Gospel because at the very beginning, the first few verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made with Him, and without Him not anything was made. And John goes in and says, we have seen Him, we have beheld his glory, that as the only begotten of the Father. John was committed to this truth that Jesus was, in fact, God. And a couple of verses after this, John said, These things I have written that you may believe that Jesus was the Christ, and that in him you would have eternal life. Thomas is the poster boy for the point of John's gospel. Because seeing that he was committed and that he was clueless and being crushed, he came to the point where he was 
consecrated fully to Jesus. Those two words, Lord, that's, we see that as a title for God. But in reality, that was a recognition of him as the absolute master. And Thomas placing himself under full submission to the master. And when a servant recognized somebody as Lord and master, it was, it's all about who you are and what you want, and it's not about me. At that point, Thomas was convinced that Jesus was fully worthy of taking, assuming that role of being master, Lord, over everything. And Thomas was placing himself at the foot of the master saying, you're in control. I'm yielding everything over to you. Literally at the feet of Jesus, he bowed down, said, you are Lord. But then he also said, you are my God. And that meant he was the center, the absolute center of Thomas's existence. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, not a God, you are my God. All of my affection, all of my life is focused on worshiping and elevating and adoring and bringing you honor and glory. So yes, Thomas was committed, he was clueless, he was crushed, but then he got to the point where he was fully consecrated. Before we get to the second point, and yes, I am Baptist, and Baptist is supposed to have three points. I only have two this morning, I'm sorry, I'm a third short. But before we get to the second point, I've seen a correlation of being fully committed but being clueless and then being crushed because of that. Because I've been there. Uh, it is my opinion that when we're clueless, it's because we're not looking at the full picture. We are seeing things from our agenda, from our perspective. I made this observation, a person can be committed to him, but focused on earthly perspectives and personal or political agendas or relationships, leaving us clueless as to the eternal purposes. It's easy for us to focus on temporal or geopolitical purposes and lose sight of the eternal purposes of God. It's easy for us to assume that because we see these as priorities, God does too. And we're tempted to superimpose upon God our perspectives and our priorities, thinking that since we have them and they're good, that must be God's uh, purposes and priorities. And that's where we become clueless. Our challenge is to follow, and I also have to say, that's why we're so easily crushed because we're basing it on our perspectives and purposes and priorities, not eternal priorities, perspectives, and purposes. We get crushed so easily because we've embraced the wrong perspective. To avoid being crushed like that, it means being fully consecrated. And so the second point, 
embrace his ultimate conclusion. Follow his example in ascribing to Jesus the role, the title, and the function of being Lord, Master, and God with full loving submission to him and his agenda. I think it boils down to this. Trust him as our own Lord slash Master and God. So three applications of this. It means trusting that he has a better plan. Now, honestly, some of the plans that I've come up with were awesome. And I thought, this is the way that's going to totally, radically revolutionize uh, life or church or employment or whatever. Problem is, God didn't exactly see it that way. He didn't ask me for my input on his plan, oddly enough. But it means that we need to trust that he has a better plan. When, uh, when we lived on Long Island, I was associate pastor of a church there, and this was 30-some years ago. Uh, our older son was uh, four years old. We went to a park there in Wontaw, and it had this maze. And it was made out of cinder block walls, and the walls were about four foot high or so. And our son at the time was about four years old, and uh, so he goes and he runs into that maze. Now, this was 30-some years ago. I was able to do it then. I was able to hoist myself up on top of those walls. I don't think I could do it now. But I stood up on top of that wall. And from on top of that wall, you know what? I could see the whole maze. And so I said, okay, Micah, turn right here. And as long as he followed my instructions, he was making his way through the maze just fine. But when he chose to ignore my instructions, he would come up to a dead end. But from that vantage point, I could look down and I saw how to get through it to the other side. We have a loving Heavenly Father who has a perfect plan. And all we have to do is follow His plan. He sits above the circle of the earth. He knows what's going on, and he can be trusted. So, trusting him as his master, Lord, and God means trusting that he has a better plan. Secondly, trust that he has it all under control. You may have heard this, but the, uh, the reality is there has never been an emergency God has never called an emergency meeting of the Trinity to address the most recent crisis. He doesn't work that way. He doesn't see things as out of control. He always has things under control. No matter how crazy it may look to us, no matter what level of pandemonium we may encounter, it is never at a point where it's out of God's control. God always has it under control. Following the Sandy Hook shooting, and that was when I first 
became aware of the gravity of serving as a chaplain, and that actually served as a, a major impact and influence in my life as a chaplain. But not long after that, there was a gathering of pastors, and the celebrated author, Max Lucado, was there. And he met with us, and he, he brought us to the end of, of Genesis chapter 50, where uh, Joseph is meeting with his brothers. And if you remember it, uh, their father had died, and the brothers come to Joseph and said, just, the last thing he said before he died was, don't kill us. And he didn't really say that, but they wanted Joseph to believe that that was what Jesus said, or what uh, their father had said. And Joseph's response to them was, am I in the place of God? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Max Licato pointed out something I'd never seen, and I'd studied that passage for years. He said, the word, you intended it for evil, the Hebrew word there is the picture of a weaver weaving together those pieces of cloth. So you were weaving your evil plan together, but unbeknownst to you, the same word is used, God was weaving his plan together. So in the course of all of that evil that was unfolding, God had it all under control. And Joseph's experience as a slave and then a prisoner was all part of this bigger reality that God had it all under control and was taking it somewhere. No matter what level of disappointment you may have experienced with God, no matter how much you feel God may have let you down, God has it under control. There's no crisis, there's no experience so devastating, so debilitating, that you will reach a point that goes beyond the realm of God's control. He still has you. And finally, trust that he loves you and cannot act in your life apart from that love. Every parent in here knows what it's like to love a child and place some kind of restriction on that child or requirement on that child that the child doesn't like. I've never known a child that agrees with and appreciates every decision of the parent. I've never seen a child say, thank you, mother, thank you, father, for that restriction. I know you have my best interests at heart, and so I'm going to accept and receive your direction joyfully and cheerfully. If you've had that experience, I, I need to talk to you. Children can often ascribe to their parents, you don't love me, you hate me. If you loved me, you would fill in the blank, or you would not fill in the blank. The child's assessment of the parent has no bearing on the reality of the parent's love. Sometimes we as children don't appreciate the father's actions and his decisions, but that doesn't mean he has acted in a way that is inconsistent with his love. 
it is impossible for God to act in our lives apart from love. And so when it seems like God has let us down, trust in his love. When it seems like Jesus has let you down, remember Thomas. He was committed. He was clueless. That led to him becoming crushed, but that then led to his full consecration. And then embrace his ultimate conclusion of trusting him as, the, in the truest sense, the Lord and master of my life and a loving Heavenly Father, God, who is going to take care of me. I'm going to invite Emmanuel and the team to come up as I give this epilogue. Uh, the story doesn't, in Scripture, the story of Thomas ends right there. But tradition and uh, some historical evidence suggests that at a certain point, Thomas felt led to leave the Promised Land and go over to the area of the world known now as India. And there he faithfully shared the gospel. He wasn't engaged in a geopolitical battle for who's in control over government. He engaged in a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. And if all of the evidence is correct, he was responsible for establishing the church there in India. But tradition suggests that there was a Hindu priest who did not appreciate these efforts and was jealous of, of Thomas's success and had him executed. And this tradi tradition suggests that Thomas died at the point of a Hindu spear. Thomas truly did give up his life for his Lord, but it was from an entirely different perspective. It wasn't because of his commitment to a purpose or a, uh, an agenda or a plan. It was because of his commitment to Jesus as his Lord and Master and as God. And I commend him and his example to me and to us this morning. Father, thank you for the reality of who you are and that your plan and that your goodness far, far exceeds anything that we could ever know. Thank you for allowing us to richly benefit from who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do. Please empower us to trust you to be fully consecrated to you. And we pray this in the precious name of your dear son who sacrificed himself for us so that we can have this relationship with you. Jesus the Christ, the King, the Messiah.